For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Well, welcome everyone to 2021 and the Brandel Chambly podcast with Jaime Diaz. Uh, it's good to be back with everyone. It's been a while. A lot of stuff's happened, obviously, in our lives and in our world and in golf as well. So some of those things have intersected and we can talk about those things. Randall, welcome. Um, Thanks. I know you're in Scottsdale. I'm in Connecticut right now. The world is uh, constantly um, Zooming and commuting and people aren't in the same place a lot of times, more than ever, probably. Hmm. But um, I wonder what's on your mind uh, as you reflect so far on what's transpired in 2021. Well, it's been a controversy-filled January in the world of golf, that's for sure. Uh, you know, as we as we speak here, we, you know, this is the day the USGA just sent out, I don't even know what you call it. It's it's not a, it's not their distance <laughs> report. It's not a statement. It's uh, their areas of interest or areas of concern. But it, nonetheless, it's uh, certainly got the golf world's attention. I'm sure Patrick Reed can thank the USGA for putting something out that maybe changed the topic of conversation away from his uh is uh yet a, yet again another scandal um that uh, has dominated the conversation but uh, that one will keep going for a while i doubt it'll stop but uh uh at any rate the usga has sort of moved to the forefront somewhat today yeah and you know even before that we had a lot of things i mean i i thought it was very significant when the pga of america uh pulled out of the contract uh, for the 2022 PGA championship at Trump Bedminster. That was uh, Bedminster. That was, I think a difficult decision uh, to go against someone with as much influence and power as the president uh, the former president, especially because he was been so connected to golf, uh, whether through his own playing or the, the courses that he owns or the, his willing, his, his desire to be part of, you know, big time tournament golf, whether it was at Doral and or at major championships at his at his uh, his courses. I know he would love to have an open championship at at Turnberry, but you know he um, I think forced the PGA of America's hand in some ways because of the insurrection, and that it took golf out of uh, you know the its little world in a way and, and entered into the the larger, the larger world, and and uh, it put golf on the spot in a way that I think was similar to what happened in Shoal Creek, although for different reasons. And I don't know. I thought Seth Waugh uh, handled it well, even though it was very difficult. Um, any thoughts on that? As far as you know, when when the world kind of you know through through events that no one asks for in golf, uh, kind of scoops up. The, the golf world and, and forces it to, uh, to take a stand for the, for the world at large. Well, regardless of your politics and look, I mean, 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. So it's, uh, it's pretty fair to say that a lot of people are sympathetic to uh, uh, that side of things, but regardless of your politics, whether you voted for Biden or you voted for Trump, um, I, I think everybody can agree that, you know, his presence, at, in this case, uh, a golf championship 
would detract from the athletes, the intention, all the attention properly being on the athletes themselves. And, you know, I, I, for that reason alone, I can understand the PGA of America's decision. You know, you want all the attention that week to properly be on the competition and the athletes. And, and uh, you know, the former president's uh, presence alone would be enough to guarantee that that would not be the case. So uh, at a minimum, I think most people can agree to that, that because of the complexities and, and the controversies uh, that, that have surrounded the man uh, you know, being present at an event would, uh, would highly politicize the event. So uh, I think it was a good decision. Uh, personally, I think it was the, the right decision. And, uh, you know, that's, it's as simple as that, really. I, I understood it. It was something they needed to do, and they did it. It was the right move. Thank you. Let, let, let me review back another sort of sociological kind of moment. And that was when uh, Annika Sorenstam and Gary Player, and again, this is Trump related, um, accepted the, the president, excuse me, presidential medal. Um, now I'm forgetting the exact term for it. I'm sorry. Presidential Medal of Freedom, um, the day after the, the Capitol was overrun with, uh, with demonstrators and protesters and, and rioters. Uh, but uh, of course that thing had been given out before or the pandemic had uh, canceled or at least postponed the, the ceremony. And it put both Annika Sorenstam and Gary Player in, in, a, in the position of, um, you know, having accepted the award and, and been proud to receive it and now being stigmatized from it by, by receiving it because people thought it was improper to, uh, to associate with the president in the White House the day after that all happened. Complex decision. I, I, I do, you know, I think they certainly would have probably had more supporters had they turned it down, but I, I understand why they, why they accepted it um, in terms of their own having, uh, ex, you know, uh, agreed to, to accept it before, and, and maybe they felt an obligation, and, and, and we're proud yeah. to receive it. Anyway, I'm going on and on here, but I, I just wonder what your thoughts were. Uh, so, you know, they had plenty of support on the conservative side, and they would have had plenty of support on the liberal side if they had refused the, but this is the highest civilian honor. The date was, uh, was obviously set long before the, uh, the unfortunate day of, of January 6th. So, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I, it's, it's a shame the day, um, you know, what January 6th, what happened that day is it's, it's, it's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. Um, and it's just unfortunate that the timing of this was the very next day. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, you go back and you look at the people that have received that honor and it's, uh, you know, there's plenty of people on there that you think, wow, I mean, that's, that's, they're very deserving of it. And then there's some where you think, whatever, but everybody's going to have their own opinions on that. But you cannot deny the fact that, uh, that uh, you know, Annika and Gary Player achieved enormous things. Um, and I've done nothing but come in here and, and, and show that it's possible to pretty much do anything in this country uh, with hard work and, uh, and perseverance and conscientious attitude. And, and and uh, the betterment of junior golfers, fitness, women, you know, all the things that Annika and Gary Player have stood for above and beyond the numbers they hung on the board. 
are attributable to uh, them receiving these honors. All right, uh, I, I, we took a long digression there. That was my, my fault if we went too long, but uh, thanks for those thoughts. Uh, I, I wonder, just, just uh, on the record right now, uh, the, the players that have played this year, and at least on the PGA Tour, um, who have won. I mean, we had Harris English at the Century and Kevin Na at, at Sony and uh, Siwoo Kim and, and last week Patrick Reed, of course. Um, I don't know. I mean, any, any themes, not from the winners necessarily, but any themes that you've seen that are developing this year uh, that may distinguish yeah. from previous years? Yeah. yeah, you know, a lot more question marks than exclamation points. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, Brooks is a question mark. Ricky Fowler is a question mark. Jordan Spieth continues to be an ever-growing question mark. Roy McIlroy continues to be somewhat of a question mark. Tiger Woods is a question mark. Phil Mickelson is a question mark. Uh, how to get your arms around what Patrick Reed did uh, at the Farmers is a question mark. What's going to happen with the USGA? Uh their proposal, how will the equipment companies uh, address that? Uh, how will the golf world address that? That's a, that's a question mark. So I can't remember a year that begins with so many different question marks. Interesting because, uh, you know, we have a couple of guys who are, I mean, certainly DJ is, is riding a wave. And I think, and I, I know you're sensitive to how, how precarious the perch is in golf. Uh, whether you're playing well or, or, or just trying to hang on to, you know, a, a nice consistent kind of career. It, it's just always close to being, uh, being upended. And that's, you know, when I, and I've always kind of had this fatalistic, I say always, I mean, the longer I've been around the game and, and seeing how difficult it is to, to sustain out, out on the tour, when I see a player fall off, in, instead of saying, well, he'll be back. I always wonder if, you know what, that might be it. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and uh, I mean, I, I even think that possibly about Brooks uh, as young. And of course, because of that injury is just, it could have discombobulated things. And, and Jordan Spieth is, uh, it, it's getting to be, you know, a, a tale of, uh, we've seen it before. <laughs> and and I, I think the odds are probably that he, <laughs> He's not coming back to the same to the same level. Uh, I hope he does. I mean, I, I think it'd be a great comeback. And but it's it's got it's now reached in my mind a, a place where it's not just a figuring out something and, and getting it back quickly. It's 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 going to be a process. And even Rory, I, I just wonder if uh, the magic the magic that was there uh, when he was free swinging and young is. Life's gotten more complicated and the thought process has gotten more complicated. All those things. I mean, you've gone through all this. Uh, do you lean that way now, uh, pessimistically more than optimistically, when you see someone struggle? Look, when we see a new player pop up, right? Uh, Will Zalatoris made eagle at the last hole at Farmers, which got him in the top 10, which got him in the Phoenix Open. And, you know, everybody says it's, it's good to see a new young player, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, every time you see a new young player pop up, that means an old player, a former player, a veteran just lost his job and, you know, or, or is about to lose his job. So it's like, as you see one, one comes in, another one's got to go out. You know, there's only so much room on the tour. There's, you know, if they're, they're filling a void and that's why, you know, the safest play is 
to allow experience to make you a better player. But that's assuming um, you have the requisite skills to be a star. If you don't, obviously you're going to chase it. You know, you're going to change. I was always, you know, I, I was trying to be a star on the tour and uh, you know, I never became a star. I, I, I kept my job out there for the better part of 15 years, but you know, I was tr always trying to, you know, get stronger or more flexible or change my swing. I get it. I, I under certainly understand it, but the risk of change is, is, is well-documented. I've talked about it a lot and, you know, Brooks is an example. Jordan Spieth is an example. Ricky Fowler is an example. Uh, Phil Mickelson is an example. I mean, these are st superstars. So if, you know, if they've all made changes to their physique or their technique that have led to their downfall, think about every stratosphere golfer doing the same thing. So as we applaud the changes that work out because it takes a lot of, you know, like Bryson DeChambeau or whatever, that takes a lot of risk. Uh, but it's, it's, there are far more that don't work out. So really, I mean, it, that's why, I mean, changes, it's a very risky proposition. Um, so, you know, I, I worry about Jordan Spieth coming back. I'd love, I think he's one of the most exciting players to play golf I've ever seen. You know, there's, there's elements of savvy in him. I worry about Ricky Fowler ever being back to the player that he was, you know, uh, certainly Brooks, um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I keep, I see, you know, I watch Rory and, and there's, there's parts of his game where I think, wow, I mean, that's, you know, surely that'll get him to the, to the major championship stage again, you know, and then he'll, you know, he'll struggle with his wedges or he'll struggle with his putter or he'll struggle with his iron play. And just, you know, here we are. I mean, it's been seven years or sneaking up on seven years since he's won a major championship. Um, and he's still young, you know, he's still young enough to do it. Um, uh, but this sport doesn't give you too many chances to ring that bell for a year. So, um, anyway, as I said, this year begins with more question marks than, than exclamation points than I, than I, than I can ever remember. And, uh, you know, the whole golf world is waiting for Tiger Woods to get to 83, which right. even at this point, you know, it's, it's less inevitable than, it was last year. Uh, you know, not only is he a year older, he's had yet another surgery. It, it seems like he will do it, but it's not inevitable. You know, I mean, Randall, you know the margins out there, how tight they are in terms of you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You know, I, I always wonder about that phrase because it's, it's scary to think, well, okay, I didn't practice today, like Hogan used to say, so I lost ground. Well, that's not necessarily true. Of course, practice can be a counterproductive sometimes. So sometimes trying to hold your ground might be a more, you know, just hold who you are, except not to say accept limitations as much as just be content with the tools you have and try to make the most of them perhaps mentally, as opposed to, you know, re, re uh, aligning everything physically. And, and so I, I just wonder with the, the difficulty of just continuing to, you've been out there, you did this. I, today we talked to Andrew McGee, who was a really good player at one, I say at one point, he was always a pretty good player. 
um, until he sort of lost something. Uh, and it was probably drive, it was probably motivation, it was probably intensity, something about the effort mentally that he could keep making. And I'm starting to think this is the thing that starts separating people. Those who have, I mean, obviously mechanics and, and swing, swing, uh, you know, uh, mastery is, is huge. But I often wonder is, you know, you see Patrick Reed who doesn't have, you know, necessarily classic golf swing or even is a particularly exceptional ball striker, but he, he has something in, inside of him that, uh, that, that's, that keeps him, you know, on a, on a very uh, sharp edge mentally going forward. Is it harder, do you think, to keep it going over the years um, as a tour player because just the mental fatigue or the, you know, the, the wearing down of, of, uh, of mental energy more than anything else. Uh, when, you, when you were starting to go, when you started to lose it a little, I know you changed your swing or tried a lot of those things, but was there something inside that changed as well? Well, Andrew and I, you know, Andrew hung in there a little longer than I did on the tour, but Andrew was in his 40s. You know, and I, I left when I was 40. Um, so, you know, as you get older, you're not as fast. You're not as limber. You're, you know, I mean, you, you know, I, I would kill to have the speed and, and uh, the flexibility that I had when I was 40 now. But you're, you're playing against, you know, players who are 20, 20, 22, 23, 25, 26, 28. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, as you get older, you know, you've got kids and, They've got homework and practices and you feel, you know, you feel conflicted about being away from them and, and you, you are on the road and you start to feel this paternal pang about being gone. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, your, your life gets a little more complicated as you get older and it's a little harder to, uh, to, to play with the same enthusiasm when you're on the road. Uh, some do it, you know, some, some do it. And, you know, they're blessed with, you know, um, you know, a support team, maybe that's amazing or their, you know, their, their talents are so considerable that even if they ebb away in their forties, they're still good enough to have success and nobody's going to quit that job if they're hugely successful, even if, even if they're, you know, struggling, uh, with their, uh, parental obligations. Um, so, you know, as you get older and, and yeah, I mean, your body changes. So you, you try to make up the difference in speed. There's there a whole host of things that, that happen. It's life. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, it's a sport. It's, this is why I, I, uh, you know, I, I go back and forth on the safety nets that they have on the PGA tour. They allow players to take a 50 uh, top 50 all time money list exemption and a top 25. And I, I just, I think those are, wrong i think it's sport it's it's it should be based entirely upon merit not upon what you've done in the past but what you can do right now and uh you know it, you know who's who's to say that you're meant to be able to play a sport for the rest of your life it's like man you got to be really sharp in every single area and if you're not you got to go do something else um yeah i went and did something else so did so did andrew mcgee um, um so yeah it's but just, it's just, just, take, a, just take about all you got. It sounds like, uh, it, it, yeah, while it, you're doing it. It, it definitely does. It's a, 
you know, I mean, again, there's people that, that do it extraordinarily well all through their 40s, like Jim Furyk, and Phil Mickelson, you know, so forth. And, and, and they certainly seem to have been fabulous at, you know, being parents and, and, and spouses and all that good stuff. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to do. It's, it's, it's a hard, it's not, you know, it's a fame filled and financial windfall and all that. And those things eliminate a lot of problems. But it's it's not without it's not without uh, some sacrifices. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, you know, one guy who does seem to have that, or a, a, a sort of uh, almost uh, you know animalistic energy, you know, for for competition, uh, and and maybe that comes from a whole complex personality package that is hard to totally analyze, but Patrick Reed, where are we with Patrick? I, I know we've talked so much about it and it probably feels almost counterproductive to keep bringing it up, but uh, just for the purpose of this podcast, uh, where, what, what, is, what is the lasting effect of what happened in your mind? Uh, both the Patrick and maybe even the game as far as how it might be officiated in the future, if there's any changes in that regard or rules or anything like that. Do you think that that was a moment that will have ripples or do you think it was an isolated moment that, uh, you know, may be repeated, but doesn't go really beyond its, its moment uh, in time? Well, I think he continues to pose that, you know, age old question, that philosophical question does, uh, does the ends justify the means? And, uh, you know, I've had many people tweet at me, you know, he won, you know, um, shut up, you know, he won by five. What are you talking about? And say, well, you're rather missing the point. Uh, it's not about how good a golfer is. This is about the integrity of the game, which, you know, may not mean anything to people who watch other sports where cheating is a part of the success of a game. And, and to a large extent, it, you know, it's applauded if people get away with it. That's not the case in golf because golf is not played with rules officials watching every player in the way that they are in every other sport. You know, 156 golfers spread out over 18 holes or, you know, at your club, there's golfers everywhere. And, and it's a police, self-policing game. So and if you can't trust somebody to play the game fairly, then the nature of the game breaks down. So when we watch Patrick Reed, you know, we are, we are reminded of his talents, certainly, but, you know, it's a bit like watching the Jerry Springer show, which had its appeal and believe it or not, outrated Oprah Winfrey, which was a show about nothing but good things. Um, but Jerry, Jerry's you know, Springer show had its appeal. People like watching the lowest common denominator and you know, Patrick Reed represents both the highest, you know, athletic pursuits in the game and the lowest respect for the traditions of the game. So he's this paradoxical sort of person that occupies a space in the professional game. But his play is, is you know, I hear people say he's good for the game. And again, I mean, he's good for the game in the same way Jerry Springer was good for entertainment. Uh, it, you know, you, tune in and you, maybe you're interested in that. I, I don't know, but, you know, personally, I would, I would rather look at 
and, and concentrate on those people that are playing the game, not only as well as it can be played, but who are handling themselves as, as, as well as, you know, we would, we would hope that people competing in sports and life and business, uh, can handle themselves. Um, you know, when, when, when I, we talk about the traditions of this game, it's this, the idea that people will play the ball as it lies. And, and, you know, he quite clearly has shown that he will do pretty much anything to gain a better lie than the one that he arrived at his golf ball and, and found. And, you know, I, I think the tour needs to sit him down and have a, an intervention. I think they need to talk to him. Um, you know, what he did there all on tape is so uh, clearly uh, reprehensible. It's, it's really tough to take. It's really tough to watch somebody walk up where we all have the benefit of watching a ball bounce in such a way where we know it's impossible. His words were literally impossible. Impossible that it would have plugged and then he claimed that there's a plugged lie. <laughs> Uh, and then watch him go through all the machinations whereby he then gets a drop. And it, it was tough to watch. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I can, I can simultaneously marvel at his talents as, as a, as a scrambler. He reminds me a little bit of Seve and a little bit of Phil Mickelson, you know, uh, you know, sort of wildly inaccurate tee to green. And then, mind-boggling spectacular around and on the greens and that's exciting to watch but him playing fast and loose with the rules of golf is is disgusting to watch let me ask one closing question about patrick and that is let's just say for the sake of argument as the tour has already maintained he did everything that he did within the rules uh however uh you know he he himself said that had he known the ball bounced, he would not have asked. Uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have marked his ball, nor would he have sought embedded uh, relief from an embedded ball, uh, because he would have said, and he did say, it would have been literally impossible uh, for that ball to have plugged. Once he saw the video, after you know the ruling was made and he played the hole after the round, do you think it's it's uh, something? some champions or, or not even champions, some players would have done to say, you know what, I, I took relief under incorrect circumstances. Uh, uh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't have gotten relief there. So uh, I'm going to, you know, penalize myself or I, I think now that you wouldn't be disqualified necessarily for incorrect scorecard. Cause I think they've changed that. And, and maybe what, maybe another one stroke penalty for uh, I don't know, playing from the wrong place or something like that. I don't know the rules as well as you do, but you know, do you think that would have been something that would have, would it have occurred to you? Would it have, do you think it would have occurred to how many players do you think that would have occurred to? What percentage would you say? Uh, or is that a far-fetched thing? Well, I, how many players would have occurred to who would have gone through the deliberations that he went through to get the drop? I'd say anybody that would do that, nobody would, uh, you know, sort of a, yeah. a redress, a, an equitable redress of the situation it would have occurred to. They just, people who do that don't think like that. 
They just don't. For them to do what they did in the first place proves that they just don't have the conscience to redress the situation in an equitable manner. But when I hear people say that he did everything to the letter of the law, I think they missed the point. And they missed the point by the distance that Phil Mickelson missed the fairway on the last hole of Wingfoot in 2006. <laughs> Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't matter whether or not he achieved the drop by the letter of the law. This is the distant, the difference between laws and morality. And this is the difference between what he was legally allowed to do and what he ethically appeared to be doing. It's, it's a nuance. Like you're not, you can take the chewing gum out of your mouth and put it on the back of your uh, seat in front of you on a plane. You can take your shoes off and put your feet up beside the people sitting in front of you, you can walk down the wrong side of the, the, the uh, sidewalk. You can, you can lie. Yeah, you, you can do all kinds of things that are not illegal, but that are nonetheless unacceptable. And what Patrick Reed did there within the community of golf, again, there is an unwritten code of conduct around your golf ball, that space around your golf ball. And he violated it in so many different ways uh, beyond the fact that the evidence of the golf ball bouncing twice, uh, it, it does not exonerate him. It impugns him. Like right. The golf ball was not embedded. So how did he find the golf ball to be embedded? And why would he pick the golf ball out of the hole so quickly, palm it, poke around in the hole, uh, again, these are just not things that you see anybody do. And while, while he, people you know, will say that he did everything to the letter of the law, if you listen to the words of Lonto Griffin and Xander Shoffley afterwards, and you heard them refer to the players who were markedly upset about this, you understand that even though the PGA Tour and the USGA say he did everything to the letter of the law. If a jury of his peers would have convicted him, you know, it's, you know, the USGA and the PGA Tour, those are not his peers. His peers convicted him. A jury of his peers would not have found him to have done everything okay. They would have said, sorry, I know, nice drop, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like nice drop, you know, but, uh, Sorry, you, 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 you played fast and loose with the rules here, and, uh, and, and you're disqualified. You know? I don't know what they would have done, but they, the jury, you, you know, a jury of his peers, which is to say his players who watched the video and saw it, they were disgusted by it. And, and because of their um, somewhat, I would say, muted outrage, because again, when you consider in the bylaws for a PGA Tour player, it's against the rules for them to denigrate another player. So they have to be pretty careful in their criticisms. They have to be pretty cagey. Uh, otherwise, they, you know, they, they make themselves susceptible to fines and suspensions and all kinds of things. So they, they have to be very diplomatic in addressing this issue. It's a very tough issue to, to confront the players with. Yeah. Uh, but reading between the lines, you could tell that they were appalled by what they saw. Well, I think that verdict will hang, you know, silently in the locker room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. think you're right about that. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Well, let's, uh, you know, we, how do we bury the lead or not? But we haven't talked about the USGA um, 
released today. And, and I think it's more than anything, a continuation of what they had already done. And it's a formalized process and probably wasn't all that exciting in terms of, you know, tangible results, but there's a lot of possibilities that are, you know, in the air now because of some of the language of, uh, of their processes. So what was your takeaway as you learned about this today? Well, it looked to me like uh, the USGA was making the equipment companies aware that they were going to widen the, the parameters of the bandwidth with which they start testing equipment. You know, going back to 1976, when they first initiated what they called the uh, overall distance standard referred to as ODS, um, to 2003, when they updated that overall distance standard from 109 miles an hour in 1976 to 120 miles an hour in 2003 and different launch angles and different distances, they're now widening the parameters so that they can test launch conditions from seven and a half degrees to 15 degrees. A very, and, and at different spin rates, and different launch rates, and then widening the parameters and being more specific about how they test golf balls. So in essence, the USGA was saying, look, we are going to get more up to date and more exact than how we test and quantify distance and the contributing factors to distance. That they basically were saying, we're a little bit in the dark. You guys are beating us. You're better at testing equipment. We, you know, we don't want to get surprised by somebody coming along with some bizarre launch angle, uh, loft and spin rate that, that, that produces distance that we had never seen before. So that's, that's one thing is you're like, listen, we're, we're going to get more specific, which, you know, all I say is it's about time. Um, you know, I mean, they were still testing with wood in 2003, even though, you know, the last person to win a major with wood was in the early nineties. So they were a little 10 years too late in that regard. So they're trying to get more up to speed there. They're suggesting that they limit the distance or the length of a driver shaft from 48 or 47 to 46. I don't think anybody has a problem with, I'm doing that. I don't know too many people that would use a 47 inch driver, but they're basically saying that. And uh, the, the, the proposed local rule at, at limiting the flight of the golf ball that I think is, you know, I read that and I thought that's laying the groundwork for them or the masters or major championships to play with a limited flight golf ball or equipment, but they, and I had a chance to talk to Thomas Pagel today. They are saying, no, this is for all those golf courses that have, you know, uh, small footprints to allow people to play like a full size, a regular game of golf on, you know, a course that's maybe 4,000 yards long, those kind of things. Um, I asked Thomas Pagel today, what if everything went your way, if all the equipment companies did exactly what you wanted them to do and everybody agreed to all of the the, the claims, even some of the more general claims about the sustainability issues of this game, which I debated with them and will continue to debate with them on. Um, if everybody agreed to it, what would be the net result, net loss, net reduction in, in the golf ball? And they did not have an answer for that. Uh, and I pressed them on it and pressed them on it and pressed them on it. And they said, we, we don't, we don't have anything in mind. We don't know. And which, which surprised me because I, I would have thought for sure that they would have sat in the room and said, look, if everything goes our way, if we can have 
you know, if we can have free reign to correct what they see, what they think is correcting the way the game is going, we could reduce the flight of the golf ball by 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards. They maintain that they have no goal in mind, that they are just looking for ways to more accurately test equipment and, 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 and that way that they can more accurately address where the game might go in the future. So while I saw a lot of people pointing to this report as a heroic stance that they were taking, they're proposing nothing in it uh, other than reducing the parameters of CT testing or the vacillation of the face or the movement in the face of the driver um, and, and the length of the driver. So uh, I, I don't find the meat in it uh, to me, it's just, uh, it was, it was more, we're trying to get up to speed so that the equipment companies don't have the advantage over us and, and, uh, and then, you know, forcing the equipment companies to test more broadly, which I maintain. And I talked to some people in the equipment business today, maintains that that will make the game more expensive and make the testing more expensive, which they would have to pass on to the manufacturer. The USGA says that's not true, that they, that they, shouldn't have to have increased cost in the testing process. So there's still that back and forth between equipment company and the USGA on this. Um, but, you know, look, I know we don't have much time, but I do want to read this to you. Okay. Sure. So this is, this is the last paragraph in a pretty important book to the world of golf. Here it is. Just bear with me. This will take about two minutes. Here it goes. There is, a pretty consensus of opinion among first-class players that the time has come when something should be done to check the excessive length to which the golf ball can be driven. Ball markers are vying with each other in producing balls of ever-increasing distance driving capacity. And as most of the best courses have now been stretched to their utmost limits, it is obvious that holes and courses are speedily being ruined as tests of the game. Green committees and golf architects having been, have been struggling for some time to maintain the normal rate of scoring by multiplying hazards, by rendering their approaches to holes more difficult, and even by increasing the difficulties to putting. But it is clear that a point has been reached at which su such devices are destroying the balance and character of the game, which make it enjoyable and worth playing. Moreover, expert opinion is practically unanimous that the long driving balls are in themselves not sufficiently reliable for the finer strokes to afford a proper test of play or to provide a sufficiently constant standard by which the merits of a player can be measured. Now that was written in the Golf Illustrated in 1912. And it was, it was under the headline, the, 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 the distance has come to a head. Yeah. Now, now those claims were no more true in 1912 than they are now. Uh, the game did not suffer. The game did not spoil. It grew, it became more popular. The game has never been more popular than it is now. It has never been more diverse or global than it is now. And for me to read the distance report and then this report, it, it, it requires me to believe that the game is in a bad place and that their sustainability claims are true, uh, and I don't. So I will not, I will not, um, I will not uh, go down the rabbit hole 
that there's a problem in the game. I don't buy their premise. I ask them uh, that they're making general claims about things without evidence, such as sustainability claims. And, and you know, their claims about ball going farther, those are obvious. Um, but how are they verifying the legitimacy of their claims um, about sustainability issues and about uh, running out of property? You know, I, I had this conversation with them today. I mean, you can look this up. I mean, 90% of the land in this world is untouched. So we're not running out of property. And, and as, it, as it relates to sustainability claims, uh, I have no doubt that entrepreneurs out there will, as water usage becomes either lessened or dependent upon grayer water, uh, entrepreneurs out there will come up with uh, hardier grasses and uh, entrepreneurs will come up with 12 hole golf courses, six hole golf courses. And, and, and so forth, but to change the very nature of the game of golf because of the whims of a few people is misguided in my view. And that's where I differ. Although I, I respect these gentlemen at the USGA and gentlewomen, I respect them. And I, I know that they think they're doing the right thing for the game of golf. Although I would argue that, you know, the, the Mike Davis who is moving on to golf course architecture uh, is very much in line with those in golf course architecture who believe that the game was better when courses were shorter and players had to, the game was harder for the best players and they had to hit longer clubs into the holes. That's their belief. And there's not a whole lot that anybody can do right now to convince me otherwise, because I've heard all their arguments. I've read all their arguments. I've read the report. I've looked at their sustainability claims. Uh, I've looked at all the evidence. I've considered their arguments and and, and while I think that they, they believe that they are acting in the best interest of the game, their claims were made, as I just read, uh, over 100 years ago, the exact same claims for the exact same reasons. And they were untrue then. But everybody, not, you know, not everybody, but every generation has a vocal group of players or people in it who think the game was better 40 years ago. And it wasn't the case in 1912, and it's not the case now. You know, uh, we're going to end it up, but uh, I don't disagree that uh, that that argument's been made forever because the game has gotten as it's gotten easier and and the and the ball has gone farther and and the clubs going into the green have gotten shorter. A lot of purists from that particular generation feel like, oh my God, you know, all the difficulty and all the skill has left us uh, because uh, the game's been corrupted. And I understand your your point that that's, that's been, you know, just a timeless generational uh, argument, you know, from the older generation to the next generation. I, I will say, I think there is a, a difference when they you talk about real estate. I, I'm not talking, I, I don't take it as, well, there's plenty of land to build more golf courses. I, I'm talking about the real estate on the existing golf courses. And I think that where, that's where the argument has to meet that if the, if the, holes just don't have enough yardage to require approach shots that I would say the golf club makeup, the 14 clubs were designed to, you know, to negotiate and you're only using, you know, the, the higher lofted clubs for approaches, then the game has lost something that it, it had tangibly. 
and that it is uh, a game that is is less dimensional and arguably because of that not as good. So I, I, I think we have met, maybe met, uh, sorry, uh, um, you know, run into critical mass here where, you know, okay, now we are out of real estate on the particular golf courses. Yeah, you can keep lengthening them. And I think the USGA's point is, well, let's just, instead of having to keep building the golf courses longer, let's, let's change the, the game we're playing to fit the golf courses we have. And I don't think that's illogical. So, you know, I don't think you're that probably that far from perhaps making a connection um, to some of their arguments or at least relating to them a little more easily, because I don't think it's, I don't think it's the same argument in 1912, uh, 1912 than it is in 2020. I think it's a different argument because of the playing field being so different. Well, they, they made the same argument then that they've run out of I know of they did, but, but yeah. in other words, you know, baseball fields used to be 480 feet to, uh, to center field when nobody hit the ball 350 feet. <laughs> uh, but so there was plenty of real estate and there was plenty of room. Yeah, but why did it It was more exciting. Well, perhaps. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a value judgment. You know, you can... I mean, it's fun to watch somebody almost drive a green and hit a, a flop shot to two feet and walk away with the, you know, a really just explosive birdie, you know, uh, and, and, you know, that's a skill and I admire it. And the guys who can do it more than others are probably better players than everybody they're playing against. But I would say that that player who does that repeatedly and makes his, you know, impact as a player because of those skills has not been tested in the other areas that traditionally used to test the champions. And I, I'd like to see that restored. And you need, you need the ball or you need the driver to not be able to get so close to the green so often for that to happen. Uh, so that's really, you know, my, my only, uh, where I would, uh, you know, uh, disagree with, with you. And, and right. at the same time, I, I mean, I respect so much how, how deeply you've looked into this. Uh, and, and I know it's a very informed opinion, but, um, you know, I, I, I do think the skill factor is something that, uh, is being diminished and it's not, it's not a crisis and it's a lot about aesthetics. We talked about this, you know, it's, it's the taste you have in the game you want to see. And it doesn't mean either game is bad. Uh, but I, I, I like the game where all those clubs are used uh, more often. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I've heard you. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, you know, do you <clears throat> change the entire game for a few players for a few holes, or <clears throat> do you? Well, I, you know, listen, Brandel, I don't. We'll, we'll stop because I, I don't need yeah. to take so much of your time. But, uh, but um, you know, I do think that this report it didn't have a lot of meat, but I think it had some uh, some parameters that are hopeful for. I think. The meeting of the minds with the with the manufacturers. I, I think there's a lot of time and and uh, consideration being given to what the manufacturers need to make their business work and to be fair to their uh, manufacturing process. And and that's why this is such. I think the news today for me was not the news, but the the the, the, the true reality, the, the harsh reality in some ways, is that we were expecting something dramatic this year, 
because hey, it was Mike Mike Davis's swan song. He's gonna he's gonna leave his mark. And instead, we have a it, it, they laid out a long, you know, very gradual process with no end in sight about doing this for the betterment of the game, with all due consideration to the competing forces that they are trying to work with. Yeah, so, I don't see the support for their argument, though. I just I don't see it broadly in the in the community of the game, the recreational players. I don't see the support there. I certainly don't see it amongst uh, some of the gatekeepers in this game, the PGA of America, um, PGA Tour. I just don't see the support for their argument. You know, well, I agree with you. The, the people you mentioned, I, I agree. Uh, I think amateurs in particular may have the bad idea they're going to lose distance. I don't think that's the USGA's intention. Uh, you know, that's a that's a hard sell. I think it'll stay pretty neutral for people with, you know, 95 mile or 90 mile an hour swing speeds, uh, which is the That's a hard thing to do, though. You can't you can't figure out a way to make it um, the same game for 95 mile an hour club head uh, if you're going to change it for 120 because 195 gets the bigger benefit uh, than the 120. So, OK, yeah, you know, they have they, they, or, excuse me, 95 miles an hour gets a bigger benefit than 120. So, yeah. Well, let's leave it there for now. And I mean, right. enjoy, you know. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm, uh, I'm out at the Waste Management Phoenix Open this week, and uh, we will have uh, no shortage of topics, I'm sure, to talk about. I, I look forward to seeing you down the road somewhere, Jaime. Where will I see you next? Probably in Stanford in the, in the studio. Uh, All right. All right. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the talk. Uh, I look forward to this year uh, and, and, and doing this podcast with you, buddy. Cheers. I appreciate it very much, Randall. Take care, man. Okay. Thanks. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.